I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. My guest today, Robert Boyers, is author of the new Scribner's volume, The Tyranny of Virtue, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for Political Heresies. Boyers is the editor of Salmagundi, a magazine based at Skidmore College where he's a professor of English and the director of the New York State Summer Writers Institute. Welcome, Professor. Congratulations on this book. Thank you so much. Um, it's one in a trend that we've hosted on The Open Mind, Bill Eginton, The Splintering of the American Mind. Uh, our viewers and readers of our transcripts on The Open Mind are familiar, no doubt, with Jonathan Haidt's work yes. in the same arena. But I just wanted to challenge from the outset the the title, the premise, and or at least ask you to flesh it out a little bit more, because can there be such a thing as a tyranny, if tyranny is an omnipotent uh, but dangerous force uh, and an omnipotent and malignant force, and virtue, at least as we aspire to understand it, is the opposite of malignant. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's idealistic. It's aspirational, but it's noble. There's nobility. How can there be a tyranny of nobility if tyranny is inherently normatively wrong and bad? Mm-hmm. Well, so it's a good, good question. Um, and of course, you know that the word virtue itself um, has been promoted um, in the worst kinds of authoritarian societies, uh, all of which had their own uh, ideas of virtue, um, official virtue, uh, and persons who in one degree or another uh, did not perform in ways that were thought to be virtuous um, were punished, um, in some cases sent away um, to concentration camps, in some cases killed, in some cases brought up on uh, charges and uh, brought to public trial, as in the 1930s, uh, when all sorts of people uh, fell afoul of the official Soviet view of virtue. So there really is, uh, I think, a long history uh, that we can invoke when we think about all of the misuses of virtue and all of the ways in which official virtue can be used as a kind of a club um, to punish Um, dissidents um, and to disallow anything that looks like a deviation from the official line. And that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about in my book when I talk about the tyranny of virtue. I'm talking about what has seemed to me the development of uh, a kind, what I call a total culture um, on campus uh, in which um, all things are subject to surveillance uh, and we're in which uh, people who seem in some way or another to deviate from the official line uh, can be called out. That's one of the terms that's favored nowadays. Uh, it can be called out uh, by people who want to signal their own virtue by calling out people who deviate. Uh, and then those people who are called out can be shamed And if shaming doesn't seem quite enough, they can be brought up on official charges, um, accused, for example, of having created a hostile environment on the campus by virtue of having spoken certain words or introduced certain forbidden topics 
And uh, that's become more and more the norm on a great many college campuses. When you talk about virtue, what is virtuous to the American creed as it's been modernized over time has been a, a set of golden rules. And, and part of that comes through constitutional law and order. Part of that comes through the mindset of a liberal democracy. Part of that comes through religious um, teaching um, and practice. Um, but I'm wondering if you think of virtue in the same way that there has been a revival of this kind of criticism of the civility police. There is um, a tradition uh, within liberalism and within the liberal university um, which um, has it that um, division, disagreement, and dispute right, uh, are cardinal virtues um, within the system. Right. And that's what we seek to promote and to preserve. Um, if you, for example, move to the context of uh, a religious institution, or for example, college or university built upon uh, religious tenets, right? It's quite clear that there is uh, a creed, um, and there's a set of uh, principles which everyone is expected to observe um, and to pay respect to. Um, but the liberal university is not a religious institution. It's essentially, so far as I'm concerned, a secular institution. Uh, and we don't expect uh, that there will be hard and fast tenets and creeds apart from what you refer to as civility um, and the, uh, the promotion of an open discourse where people feel free to express themselves in um, diverse ways. So uh, I, I think you know, in, in that sense, um, it's very difficult to suppose that you can actually continue um, to have a liberal university when everything is subject to surveillance and when, in fact, division and, and, and dispute when it comes to certain things uh, are regarded as over the line. When people talk mm -hmm. about, you, you know, the, yeah. one of the, the common expressions used nowadays um, is safe spaces. Well, you know, I think safe spaces. Well, if you mean a safe space, um, is a space in a, in a discussion or in an auditorium, uh, in a classroom or a workshop where people don't call one another disgusting names, well, sure, we want that kind of safe space because we can't really have conversation and we can't have learning or education without that. But if you mean by safe space, uh, a space in which no one will feel uncomfortable, in which no one will feel challenged, in which no student will hear anything that might make her feel uh, that somehow she's being pressed, well, I, I don't think we can have that. Um, and that's the sort of thing I'm trying to get at in, uh, in my book, the, the distinction between ordinary civility and the demand for safe spaces, which really would make uh, any kind of educational mission impossible. As I said recently on this air, I'm an adherent to John Palfrey's idea of safe and brave spaces. Uh, I think those two things can coexist. But you said something interesting, Professor. You mm. talked about the diverse manner of expression. But we have to be intellectually honest about what that diversity has devolved into, mm -hmm. right? 
what we might consider, and you write here, people of my 60s generation suppose that the most likely to censor and despise genuine argument were conservatives who knew better than to fight about what to them seems self-evident. We have to be forthcoming about what this next generation of conservatives means to the discourse, whether it is emulating President Trump's tweets or other bigoted kinds of discourse. And that doesn't mean you have to censor it, but you have to classify it under the, the guise of bigotry. Oh, absolutely. Right. Oh, certainly. And, and that's where this kind of conversation about woke culture is just unnecessary and dysfunctional. Because, you know, I don't think it does a service to the country when President Obama says that the, the cancel woke culture is, is wrong when he doesn't describe what specifically is wrong, mm -hmm. right? Because if, if woke culture means boycotting hate speech, um, then, then that's something that has a historic tradition in the American experience to boycott causes that are either anti-democratic or unconstitutional or bigoted. When you just layer out the idea that woke is wrong or woke is right, you're, you're, missing, you're missing the big picture. Well, I quite agree. And, and uh, of course, uh, you know uh, that in the liberal university, um, there is relatively little um, hate speech that one confronts. We've had in my own little um, bucolic liberal arts campus um, instances of hate speech now and then. Um, not too long ago, we had some awful words scrawled on a dormitory door. Every now and then, you know, a, an incident, a bias incident is reported, um, and it's sent out to the community on, on an email uh, from the Human Resources Office, and we're aware of it. It exists. Um, and, and we all feel that uh, we want to do something about that, and we hope that our enterprise in general um, helps students to think about uh, what hate speech entails and what might be done about it. But in fact, that doesn't seem to me to be the primary problem that we're dealing with here um, when, when we talk about the uh, university as a surveillance culture. Um, you know, there are more than 235 um, institutions of higher learning uh, right now which have uh, what are called bias response teams, which are uh, officially assigned to root out what they call microaggressions. Now, microaggressions are not uh, hate speech, right? Microaggressions are much smaller things, usually actually um, unintentionally spoken by uh, persons, um, which you can either call out, address, discuss, um, deplore, or, or ignore but which, when they are made into a major issue um, and lead to, uh, again, the bringing up of people on charges or threats to people along those lines, then it seems to me um, you've got a, a kind of a disproportionate emphasis on very small and usually trivial things, right? I mean, really, microaggressions, so-called, you think of the term, do not entail hate speech. Hate speech is not a microaggression. Right? Hate speech is, a real, is the real deal. Um, and when you hear it and when you experience it, um, you want to do something about well, it. I don't know how the advocates of 
microaggressions as problematic define microaggressions. I don't know how they define it specifically. I don't know how opponents of that advocacy define it, but I'm sure they define it differently and it is somewhat subjective to say here are events transpiring that amassed are going to dehumanize or incite violence against a person or community or institution. Mm -hmm. So the idea of an aggressive act having a micro level, well, that's a normal idea, that there can be micro and macro degrees of, of violence. Mm -hmm. It's how we're defining it, right? That's exactly. It's how you're defining it. But so if you're defining it as bias and maybe unintended bias, then I don't think that's a fair definition of aggression. Mm -hmm. But that bias could be expressed in an aggressive way, and we have to be cognizant of that. To my mind, if woke is cool, what's woke is differentiating between bias and bigotry. Mm -hmm. Bias can become bigotry, but it doesn't necessarily mean bigotry. Yeah. So how, how do you envision correcting this lack of coherence and misunderstanding within the college commons? Well, what I, what I recommend, um, and I recommend it to my own students, and I recommend it to colleagues, uh, and I've gone around the country recommending it in lectures and speeches and so on, um, is learning to differentiate between things that are genuinely important and things that are less important or not important at all. Um, and that's not so easy. It requires the exercise of judgment and discrimination. And obviously, it's the kind of thing that people can disagree about. I mean, why not? Uh, we disagree about almost everything. Why shouldn't we disagree about that? What constitutes a microaggression? What's serious? What's significant? What's not? I mean, sure. Let me give you an example, because I think examples sometimes uh, help. An example isn't an argument, but it can help an argument. Um, I devote a chapter of my book um, to something which has come to be known as disability studies. Um, it's a significant area of scholarship and discourse, um, certainly in the academy. Uh, I have a couple of colleagues in my own department at Skidmore College who do excellent work in disability studies. They've published books in, in the field and so on. But recently at, uh, at my college, um, again, I, I was moved by this to write a, a small chapter of my yeah. book on the subject. Uh, we found posters affixed to the door of every department office, which means that every department chair in the college agreed to have this poster affixed to the door. And the title of the poster was, Keep Skidmore Safe. And when you read the poster, there were examples of that which we were um, supposed to keep Skidmore safe from. We were to keep Skidmore safe from so-called ableist language. Examples were given on the poster. Learn to walk in someone else's shoes. Stand on your own two feet. Those are examples on the poster. Students are admonished on the poster. This is put out by uh, a division of the college involved with disability studies. Students are admonished to call out their professors if they hear their professors use such language, demand of their professors that they cease to use such language. If they continue to use such language, students are given instructions on the poster as to how to bring them up on formal Title IX charges for creating a hostile environment. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. 
right? That's the new kind of virtue signaling, and that's the new kind of microaggression, which is now taken to be a big deal. Um, and I give other instances or examples in my book of exactly this sort of thing, some of which I've experienced, some of which uh, I hear about from professors all over the country who write me emails about what's lately been going on uh, in their own institutions. So it's not, a, it's not strange to say, it's not a small or marginal phenomenon that I'm uh, describing. So it's, where do you draw the line, Professor? Often, again, you can say you know it when you see it, but of course not everybody will see it in the same way. And again, well, um, it, examples of yeah. this, you know, I think, I think answer your question. Um, sometimes we're talking about very small things and sometimes sort of bigger things that can really, really disturb people and create a hostile environment. Um, in, my, in my wife's poetry workshop, my wife's a poet and, and uh, teaches workshops in poetry at, at Skidmore, um, when, when uh, a manuscript is turned in and, and a student uh, reads it and says, I'm sorry, but I think that's stupid, this, this poem is stupid, or I think you're stupid for writing the poem, my wife says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't use that kind of language, we don't say that kind of thing to one another, otherwise we, we won't be able to have the kinds of civil conversations we want to have. Um, at a public event this past summer, uh, a famous novelist, um, giving a reading, reading out a passage of a novel, um, read out the N-word several times. It was coming from the mouth of a character in that part of his novel. Right? Now, that created a lot of trouble. It's my program, my summer program. It created a lot of trouble uh, for us because a lot of people were deeply offended. Um, most people stayed, only a few people walked out of the auditorium, it was a big crowd. Um, and you know, this has been an issue in numbers of different places. Uh, the reading out of the N-word. The black novelist Walter Mosley uh, published an op-ed in the New York Times about six weeks ago about he got brought, the way he got brought up on charges for using the N-word, reading it out from a passage in a class of his. Um, well, let's just clarify. Yeah, sure. Brought up on charges institutionally, yes. not criminally. Institutionally, not criminally. Right. <laughs> because, but the, here's, here's sure. the rub, Professor. You write, I know there is a danger in thinking about the present situation as if there had been in the past a golden age when politics did not occupy our thought, thoughts quite so insistently and students were more than willing at present to cut their professor some slack. Um, and not be waiting for them to misstep and thereby demonstrate their cluelessness about power and the creation of hostile environments. But your point about the N-word is, is important. Um, I was recently at Iowa State giving a talk myself, and there was a gentleman who came after the talk and asked me a similar question, where do you draw the line? And it was pointed out in our discussion that in the reunification after the Civil War, we didn't take the steps that, that Germany did after the Holocaust when it comes to the symbols or the, the language that invoke Nazism. That is criminal, right? Here, it isn't criminal. And it's also not criminal for Twitter and Facebook to proliferate um, <clears throat> these monstrous storms of hateful bigotry and disinformation. So the American system, even though Slavery was 
an, an analogous moral atrocity, uh, the American people never adopted the same guardrails as the post-Holocaust Germany did, right? Isn't Absolutely. that important to That's establish? very important. And I would say, just in, in, in completing what I, I started to say uh, about the use of the N-word, Again, people differ about right. this. I would never use the N-word in my class. Not because I'm a great guy, uh, no. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a left liberal, and, and I know I have other friends who are left liberals, who, including the guy who read out that passage yeah. uh, that night, who thinks if they're reading out a passage and it comes from the mouth of a character, it's perfectly right. legitimate. In my classes, when I'm teaching Richard Wright and his characters say that word, I tell my class, we don't say that word in the class. Why not? Because there will be people in the room who will find it extraordinarily offensive and it will affect the way they relate to our conversation, mm -hmm. to the learning we're trying to, to accomplish. So I don't want to fight that fight. It's not worth fighting right. that fight. I, I feel that very strongly. Right. Um, but but um, at the same time, I think one has to recognize that uh, there's a difference between the use of a word like that Right, which is a trigger for all, courts, all sorts of very deep feelings, which have, as we both know, right, a long, long history. And the use of casual expressions like um, learn to stand on your own two feet. Uh, I mean, and that's the sort of thing we found ourselves somehow unable to make distinctions about. And I do understand, Professor, how the contemporary campus can feel like an inversion of the McCarthyism on the part of uh, professors in particular, but students too. I mean, I, I sure. would impart that too. They are just as much surveilled in their every behavior to analyze something that may be unintended or that may be completely innocuous and can be a source of disciplinary action. I get it. Mm -hmm. I've been there, yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Uh, but my, my final question that, that I want you to grapple with is this idea of the cluelessness about power and the creation of hostile environments. So these microaggressions are considered in a climate that has been marginalizing um, women, not insofar as their representation on the campus, but politically their representation because mm -hmm. More women vote, more women are gainfully employed, more women contribute to civic life and society, and yet they're not the ones elected to higher office to represent themselves. So there are these global, you know, systemic inequalities that are thrust upon uh, academics like yourself. I think it's impossible to... Um, to function in the world and certainly impossible to function in the university um, while pretending that there isn't a real world out there and that people um, don't bring to the table all sorts of feelings and concerns and issues that they're picking up in the environment that we all share. So there is no question for myself, for example, that um, the usual things, first of all, obviously one wants to be sensitive to inequities um, in a given context, in a room, in a group of students. One wants to, to deal with those as best one can. One also wants to create an environment in which the widest possible range of perspectives uh, are invited to interact. 
so that when I create a curriculum uh, for my recent fiction class, a, a course I invented about 50 years ago in, at our institution and so on, um, I want to make sure that my students are reading novels by uh, a great Islamic author like Hamel Daoud, by numbers of women like Zadie Smith and Claire Massoud, uh, by black writers. I, 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 my, my curriculum is diverse, not because right, I want to have all the boxes checked off, but because why not? Why shouldn't I do that? Why shouldn't I have my students doing those things? So I want my students to be alert to those issues and those concerns. And by the way, some of them are not so happy to be made alert to those things. Uh, they, they have to be pressed. Uh, some of them wonder, why are we reading a novel by an Islamic author? Who's interested in the perspective of an Islamic author? I mean, what, what does that have to do with, with our life here in this, in this campus in upstate New York? And you, know, and you have to say, no, no, it's, it's actually critically important. We just have seconds left, but sure. you said it's important for diverse perspectives to interact. Yes. And I think you would stipulate, as would I, that bigoted perspectives can't interact. They don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah, yeah. and of course, then again, you get the, the question of, uh, of how you define uh, bigotry. If you define bigotry as simply the introduction in a novel, of a perspective, oh sure, right? sure, which is articulated by a character in a book. Well, and we're also talking about two worlds yeah. uh, where bigotry in the way characters devise their behavior or authors devise their characters in in fiction is a different situation than the bigotry of perspectives not in the book. I'm not talking about diverse perspectives interacting in a book uh -huh. or a collection of books. I'm talking about students in the classroom sure. or community members yep. in an academic setting mm -hmm. because you can't have that fundamental interaction if there is bigoted and closed-mindedness. Um, you just can't have it. It's just yeah. the chemistry is not, is not possible. Uh, I, I'm afraid to say after this very lively exchange we're out of time but I hope we'll have an opportunity to continue this discussion soon. I would love it. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Professor, and thank you for writing this great book, The Tyranny of Virtue. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.